You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 30, Teresa Selecki. It was 1984. 29-year-old Teresa Selecki had just returned from a quick girls' trip to Mexico with her girlfriend Patty a day or so earlier. But on this Tuesday, January 10th, Patty wasn't feeling so well. In fact, she had been suffering for some time from what are sometimes delicately referred to as female issues. Teresa felt that Patty needed to see a doctor. But Patty was short on money and didn't have a doctor she visited regularly, so she demurred. Teresa suggested that Patty go see a doctor that Irina, Teresa's sister and roommate, swore by. She said that she would get the doctor's name for her friend. In the meantime, the two laid low at Patty's house on Woodland Avenue in Vista, California, in San Diego County. After a time, Patty felt a little better. The two young women were hungry, so they decided to head to a local tavern called Smitty's Bar to get some burgers and maybe a beer. The two jumped into Teresa's car and drove the half-mile to Smitty's, located at 2577 South Santa Fe Avenue in Vista, for a burger and some beers. Teresa and Patty were well-known at Smitty's. Teresa worked as a cocktail waitress back in those days, sometimes referred to as a barmaid, and had worked at Smitty's in the past. Patty was local to the neighborhood Smitty's was in, and she was a regular there. The two young women felt at home in the cozy bar, which had a total of about 10 patrons that night. They ended up staying very late and didn't leave Smitty's until about 1.45 a.m. They headed back to Patty's house, and Patty started to feel poorly again. That's it, Teresa decided. I'm going to get the name of my sister's OBGYN for you. The only problem was Patty didn't have a phone. It had been turned off because, low on funds, she was unable to pay the bill. Of course, back then, no one had a cell phone. VCRs were barely even a thing. So, Teresa decided to find a payphone to call Irina to ask for the doctor's name and number. Patty knew just where there was a payphone located nearby. Teresa left right around 2.30 a.m. to make a call from a payphone at the Buena Vista Market, located at 1944 South Santa Fe Avenue. This is very close to where Patty's house was located, about a quarter mile away, on the same road where Smitty's bar was located. The market was closed, but the payphone, attached to the outside wall of the market, was working. Not a booth, this was the kind of payphone that was like a bank of phones with small dividers. Teresa dialed her apartment, and it rang and rang. Her 21-year-old sister Irina did not answer. Finally, the answering machine picked up, the old-school kind with actual mini-cassette tapes in it, and Teresa left a message saying, Hey, Irina, it's me. 
I need to talk to you. I need your doctor's name. Pick up, pick up. When Irina didn't answer, Teresa hung up. She called back five minutes later and still no answer. This time she said she'd call back in five minutes. We don't know whether she waited in the car or waited on the street, but she did call back in about five minutes' time, saying Patty was ill and she was going to stay the night with her. All in all, Teresa left three messages on the answering machine. It was around 2.45 a.m. Teresa never returned to Patty's apartment, and if Patty was alarmed at Teresa not coming back, she had no phone, so she could not have called Teresa's apartment or the police. She ended up falling asleep. On Wednesday morning, January 11th, Daryl Sandner, a delivery man for the Vista Morning Press, was setting out on his rounds. It was very early, pre-dawn, at 4.15 a.m. He was driving along Gopher Canyon Road in Vista, about a tenth of a mile west of Vista Valley Drive, when the beams from his headlights caught something on the other side of the roadside up ahead. A car was sitting on the side of the road, not in a location where vehicles were normally parked. Darrell noted this oddity and continued on his journey, passing the vehicle in the other direction. Darrell didn't see the dead body at first. He drove by and delivered some papers, did a U-turn, and it was only on his second pass that he saw it. As he approached the parked vehicle from the rear, he saw an object lying on the dark roadway almost tucked behind the parked car. He parked his own van and got out to investigate. The nude body of a woman was lying on the roadway. She lay behind and partially under the right rear bumper area of an orangish-brown vinyl-top sedan parked next to the curb. Her head was closest to the undercarriage of the vehicle near the tailpipe. Her body lay twisted back along the passenger side of the vehicle. Here's what Daryl told the Vista Press at the time. Quote, I came back and decided to take another look, pulled in behind the car with my brights on, and that's when I saw the female. It was a nude female with her face between the rear wheel and pavement, like someone backed up on it with some blood. Daryl assumed that he was looking at the aftermath of a car accident. He didn't touch anything. He drove to a payphone at a market on Eagle Vista Way and called the police. There, he waited for firefighters to meet him, and he led them to the scene. It was less than two hours since Teresa had made the final phone call to her sister. Sergeant Rick Figueroa, who was on duty that night, got the call about a supposed hit-and-run around 4.30 a.m. But as soon as he heard that the body was nude, he called for additional officers to meet him at the scene. A hit-and-run in that location at that time of night would have been bizarre, but a naked hit-and-run victim raised some serious alarm bells. And once Figueroa got there, he saw that it was a case for the homicide unit. San Diego Sheriff's Department homicide investigator Bob Berger arrived at the scene and started the investigation. The body on the roadway was tentatively identified from the license and vehicle registration as Teresa Lucina Solecki. San Diego County Sheriff's deputies and Vista Police closed Gopher Canyon Road and scoured the crime scene for nine hours. Teresa's body was left in place for much of the time, not being removed by the coroner until afternoon. In fact, it was there for so long that photographers from the local media got photos of the body lying in place. No obviously fatal wounds on the body were visible to first responders, although there was blood on the victim's head, and one observer at the scene told the Blade Tribune, quote, her face was pretty messed up. A bloody drag mark was clearly visible on the blacktop roadway. 
It seemed to indicate that Teresa was dragged maybe two feet from further behind the car to where she was found tucked in behind its rear bumper and lying along the right side of the vehicle. Deputy Coroner Robert Grubb said, quote, There were lots of abrasions and bruises, but we won't know the cause of death until after the autopsy. The autopsy showed that Teresa had died from manual strangulation. She had abrasions and scratch marks on her neck. She had a bite mark on her breast. She had extensive areas of abrasions and contusions on her back and buttocks, and she had a serious laceration on her head that had been the source of the blood on the roadway. It was evident to the pathologist that Teresa had fought hard against her attacker. Deputy Coroner Chuck Bolton announced that the case was a homicide. Tests were performed to determine whether Teresa had been raped. On January 19th, Deputy Coroner Robert Grubb announced that they could find no evidence of rape. But visible to the naked eye of the first responders, including Detective Berger, was a fresh semen stain on Teresa's buttock. It was clear that a sexual assault had taken place and the killer had left physical evidence behind. Let's talk about Teresa. Teresa Lucina Selecki was born on March 5, 1954, to parents Lech and Eleonora Selecki of Buffalo, New York. Teresa was the third oldest of the five Selecki kids. Her father was a Polish immigrant who worked as a machinist. Although the young women were East Coast natives, Teresa and her sister Irina had lived together on Lincoln Avenue in Escondido for the past two years after moving from Buffalo in 1982. Her father told the Times Advocate that he was the one who convinced his daughters to move to the Golden State. And now I feel sorry, he told the paper. Irina said the sisters moved out to the Golden State for the sunshine. She said, quote, We didn't want to move to San Diego because we didn't want to move into a big city with a lot of crime. We thought Escondido was a nice little town. I wouldn't like anybody else to have to go through this. When she died, Teresa was employed as a part-time cocktail waitress at the Gizmo Club in Encinitas. But her goal was to get her license to sell real estate in California. She had obtained her license in New York, but she and her sister wanted to get out of the cold, dreary weather and follow the sunshine. Her brother Andrew said she came out west to make her fortune. She never got to see her plans come true, but she would have. She was that kind of person. Teresa's mother described her as a true friend, someone who would do anything for anyone. Irina told the investigators when they knocked on her door that her sister was a homebody, someone who often stayed in, had no hobbies, but loved her and Irina's cat, Ophelia. Teresa did not have a boyfriend at the time of her murder, but she had dated a lot of guys. She also had no criminal record, not so much as the parking ticket. Sergeant Figueroa told the Valley Press, quote, Both sisters seemed to be nice girls. Irina told the media that they were a very close family and that with Teresa's murder, quote, we lost a part of us. A fellow waitress at Gizmos told the paper that Teresa wore hand-me-down clothes and worked hard to pay her bills, but she always had a twinkle in her eye. At five foot five and 118 pounds, the brown-eyed brunette was very popular and friendly and was comfortable in the world of bars and nightclubs that she and her sister worked in to make ends meet. After the murder, Teresa and Irina's brother Andrew came out to San Diego to help Irina pack up her and Teresa's things and take them back to upstate New York. Irina never moved back to California, although she did return several times to the area to talk to people about her sister's case. Back to the scene of the crime. Teresa was found on Gopher Canyon Road, about 10 miles from the market from which she had called her sister at the payphone. The Valley Press describes this as follows, quote, 
The remote stretch of Gopher Canyon Road is populated by only a few farmhouses all the way from East Vista Way to Interstate 15 north of Escondido. Teresa's car was pulled over to the side of the road and parked next to the dirt shoulder. Abutting the other side of the shoulder was a concrete sidewalk, and on the other side of the sidewalk was a sloping hillside that led down to a verdant fairway on the Vista Valley Country Club golf course. Hardly a homicide hotbed. The winding, isolated two-lane road was a totally random-seeming place to leave a car and victim. If the killer had been a little more of a planner, he would have put Teresa in the trunk, driven the car to a populated location like a shopping mall or airport, and left it in the busy parking lot. Who knows when the vehicle and she would have been found. But I guess this spot worked out for the killer because police were not able to find him for decades. So what happened here, and how did Teresa and her car get to the Gopher Canyon Road location? There's a lot we don't know. Teresa's car, a 1972 Mercury Cougar, license plate 491EBV, was parked along the shoulder on the side of the road abutting the golf course. There were signs of a struggle, said San Diego Sheriff's Department spokesperson Lieutenant Jan Stouffer. She was referring to the drag marks that showed that a bleeding Teresa had been dragged along the pavement to where she lay. Detective Troy Dugal, the San Diego Sheriff's Department cold case unit detective who closed this case, and whom I spoke with extensively, told me that investigators came to believe that Teresa was assaulted outside the car, and then she was moved, either already dead or dying. The drag marks showed that Teresa's killer slid her from a spot where she was more visible from the roadway to one where she was more hidden under the rear of the car. It's believed that he was hoping to put off Teresa being discovered. As I said, my question was, why on earth didn't he leave her inside the car where she wouldn't be visible at all to passers-by? And the answer was, speculates Detective Dugall, that the killer got spooked and had to flee before he could tidy up. Here's what happened. Teresa was found nude and barefoot. Her shoes were located by crime scene investigators down the embankment, on the slope leading from the road down to the golf course below, in about six inches deep brush. But this is incredibly creepy. When Daryl, the Vista Press delivery man who found her, first parked and walked tentatively up to the dead woman lying on the ground, he also saw the pair of women's brown closed-toe wedge sandals with ankle straps. They were lying right next to the body near the dead woman's head. Daryl said, quote, There were some shoes just on the other side of the body off the road south side of the body. When Daryl arrived back on the scene, returning with the firefighters to the location of what he thought was an accident, the shoes were gone from that spot. They were found down the hill. Daryl told the Vista Press, quote, In that span of time, someone had taken her shoes and thrown them down an embankment. Police told me the murderer probably watched me come out and look at the body. It seemed that the murderer had been there the whole time, shrinking into the shadows as Daryl got out of his car and examined Teresa's body on the ground. When Daryl drove off to find a phone, the killer panicked, threw the shoes down the hill, and ran off. And investigators could see exactly in what direction he had run. Sergeant Rick Figueroa said, quote, We got more evidence vital to the case a short distance away. He was talking about Teresa's shoes that were thrown down the hill, which told them that the killer had been there watching as Daryl approached. But he was also talking about two sets of footprints that detectives observed at the scene. The night when Teresa was killed was cold, by San Diego standards anyway, and very foggy. 
Dawn saw everything covered in dew, the droplets glistening when the sun came up and then evaporating quickly. On the dirt shoulder next to Teresa's car were visible two distinct sets of footprints, one barefoot and one larger wearing shoes. Teresa was found barefoot, so it was believed that the bare footprints were hers, and they told detectives something important. At some point, Teresa had been alive and standing up on the shoulder of the road, wearing no shoes. The shod set of footprints was equally telling. The prince, believed to be the suspect's, left tracks that showed he ran across the street and disappeared into the shrubbery on the other side of the road. They were headed in the direction of the market where Teresa had been just a couple of hours earlier. Teresa was last seen wearing designer jeans, a long-sleeved striped tan blue and lavender blouse, a white sweater vest with fleece lining, white socks, and the sandals that were found chucked down the hill. The rest of her clothing and her purse were not found in the car or next to her body. They were found across the street, dumped on the ground in a pile. The pile was along the path taken by the footprints left by the suspect crossing the road. For some reason, and it's anyone's guess why, he had gathered all Teresa's clothing and purse and taken off carrying them before dropping them on the side of the road. There was no sign that robbery was the motive for this crime. Teresa's purse was still intact and still contained her wallet, but a semen stain was found on her white fleece sweater vest. It looked as though either Teresa or the suspect had used it to clean up after the sexual assault went down. Investigators found the keys to the car way down on the golf course. No one knows who was driving the car that night or how it got from the market in Vista to Gopher Canyon Road. The route was not on Teresa's way home to her apartment in Sanitas and was nowhere near Patty's place or the Buena Vista market either. Since Teresa was not familiar with the Vista area, detectives surmised that she had been forcibly brought to the location where she was found. Investigators towed and processed the car that was registered to Teresa. The process told them virtually nothing. No helpful fingerprints were found in the car. No blood was in the car. Nothing was in disarray. There were no visible tire marks on the roadway that indicated a battle for the wheel or any kind of sudden movement. The positions of the seats gave nothing away. The Mercury sat mute, unable to relate any helpful hints about what had happened to its owner. It was a mystery. Even after spending nine hours on the scene the first day, investigators returned the next day, performing a grid search on the road, the golf course, and surrounding areas looking for any clues. They canvassed the neighborhood and talked to people about whether they had seen or heard anything that night. Nothing helpful came from this part of the investigation. As I mentioned, Teresa was identified from her license in her wallet, but it took investigators until late in the evening to figure out where Teresa actually lived, because the address on the vehicle registration was only a P.O. box. We don't know whether Teresa's sister Irina was frantically looking for her, or rather assumed that her sister had stayed with her friend and would be home when she got home. It seems likely that Irina either got a phone message or a calling card that she needed to call authorities. Records reflect that at 2.30 a.m. on the 12th, the day after Teresa was found, Irina called the coroner's office and was put in touch with Detective Berger. Berger went to her apartment and met with Irina. She told him about the messages her sister had left on the answering machine. Detective Berger was able to listen to the messages and actually collected the tapes, which are still in evidence to this day, an eerie auditory piece of Teresa that is still in existence. 
Irina told detectives that Teresa had last been heard from in the messages on the answering machine the night before. Irina, who also worked as a waitress, had been asleep when her sister called. One of Teresa's messages said that she was staying at Patty's house in Vista and that she could be reached at the payphone at the Buena Vista Market on South Santa Fe Avenue. Her last call was well after 2.30 a.m. We don't know whether Teresa sat in her car or loitered by the phone in case Irina called her back, but it seems likely that whichever was the case, someone was watching her. After talking to Irina, detectives tracked down Patty. She told them the whole story about why Teresa had been at the payphone that night. I would imagine that Patty, irrationally, felt very guilty. If her phone had only been in working order, Teresa would be alive. Next, detectives stopped in at Smitty's Bar, the place where Teresa and Patty had gone on the night Teresa was killed. The female bartender was very helpful. She knew Teresa and Patty, of course, but she was also able to give detectives names for all but one bar patron. This was a guy who was playing pool that night that she didn't know but was able to describe. Skinny white guy, young, longer hair, wearing a jean jacket with no sleeves. No one knew this guy's name, though. He was just a guy in a bar. There was nothing remarkable about him. No one had paid Teresa any special attention that night, and detectives had plenty of other persons of interest to work with. Irina told detectives that on the last night she saw her sister before Teresa went to Patty's place, Teresa and Irina had been sitting at the kitchen table talking. Teresa told her sister that she was going to quit her waitressing job. She didn't want to, she needed the money, but her manager would not leave her alone. He was fixated on her, Irina said, and had been harassing Teresa for months to date him. Irina told the Times Advocate, quote, He was obsessed with her. Two weeks earlier, she called me in panic because he attacked her. She locked herself in the car. Bingo. This, of course, is the kind of lead cops investigating a murder are hoping for. It gave them a place to start. The manager has never been named publicly, so I am just going to refer to him as the manager. And he remained on the suspect list for years and years. It's not clear whether he actually attacked Teresa or whether Irina was exaggerating, but it was clear to everyone whom Teresa worked with that the guy was aggressively pursuing her and she was not interested in reciprocating. Now, it has to be said that Teresa had dated this guy, the manager, but for her, it was a casual thing. For him, not so much. He wanted more. And when she rejected him, multiple witnesses told investigators he was angry. He quickly rose to the top of the list. The manager did have an alibi that, in theory, excluded him from being Teresa's killer, but he was such a good suspect that he stayed on the list for years. And Teresa, investigators discovered, had quite a long list of paramours. In fact, she had had physical relationships with a number of men, some of whom were ex-boyfriends and some of whom were casual flings. Investigating them all made for a lot of legwork. But other than the manager, no one stood out or raised investigators' eyebrows. A week into the investigation, investigators were already frustrated with the lack of progress. They had made a request to the public to come forward with any information on Teresa's murder. Homicide Sergeant Rick Figueroa said, quote, We got a couple of calls, but nothing we could hang our hat on. One of those calls was from a man who had something interesting to say, but it petered out. The caller told police that he had seen the stories on the news about the dead woman in Vista, and it triggered a memory. He had picked up a male hitchhiker on the night Teresa had died. This was from a location that wasn't that close to the crime scene, but was the right time of day, around dawn. 
He had dropped the guy off at an intersection in Vista, but not at any specific address where they could track him. What was interesting about this tip was the driver recalled that the hitchhiker was wearing a sleeveless Levi's jean jacket. This brought to mind the guy in Smitty's that night who was unknown to the bartender. But, of course, it was the 80s. Everyone was cutting up their clothes, flash dance style. The witness came in and worked with a police sketch artist on a composite drawing of the hitchhiker who could have been the guy in the bar. But without a name for either man, the lead fizzled out. Frustrated beyond measure with the lack of progress in the investigation into who killed Teresa, her siblings, parents, and other relatives chipped in to raise a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of her murderer. In January 1985, with Teresa's case nearly a year old, her brother Andrew and sisters Irina and Donna took time off from work and flew out to San Diego County. They brought with them flyers with Teresa's picture, a plea for information, and an announcement of the reward and a phone number. They drove around posting the flyers and stuffing them in every mailbox they could see. All in all, they circulated over 600 flyers in the area where Teresa was killed. They also searched out all the media in the area, newspapers, TV, radio stations, to seek coverage of their sister's case. Teresa's brother Andrew spoke to the LA Times in 1985, saying, quote, It's been a year now, and we haven't gotten anybody under lock and key, so us brothers and sisters and mom and dad decided to put together the reward and find out who killed our sister. People tend not to get involved. Maybe with some compensation, they will help. We need to get that phone call. We don't consider her gone just yet. Andrew also told the Weekly World News, quote, Teresa was a very strong person, the last kind of person you'd expect to get murdered. She always looked after everyone in our family. Now we are going to look after her. We all know this is a long shot, but we just can't let this thing die. We don't know what else to do other than the reward. Andrew also said of the killer, This is a very sick person, someone who should be behind bars. Even after one year and with Teresa buried in the family plot outside Buffalo, Andrew persisted in referring to his slain sister in the present tense. Irina, who lived with Teresa, echoed her brother's sentiments, saying to the morning press, quote, She was the boss of the family. She took care of the younger and older. She was a strong person. She was the least likely something like this would happen to. But as we all know, it did. Unfortunately, someone else was even stronger than Teresa. As a direct result of the family's efforts, the San Diego County Sheriff's Office received scores of phone calls with tips, according to Homicide Sergeant Rick Figueroa, who at the time called the case solvable. He said to the Times Advocate, quote, There's no such thing as the perfect crime. But it seems to me that a crime can be perfect for its time. In the vast majority of the cases I've covered, the crime was near perfect because of a lack of witnesses or evidence that led to the killer. Only time and the development of new methods of forensic analysis and DNA comparison techniques would solve them. So as I said, Teresa's case fairly quickly went cold. A homicide detective in the sheriff's department told the Times Advocate in 1990, quote, Sometimes you do everything you can, and then you just have to let it sit until something new turns up. Teresa's father, quoted in the Times Advocate in 1990, said, quote, I don't give up. I think that sooner or later I will catch up with the person who did this. He went on a personal mission to find his daughter's killer. But just like the more experienced detectives before him, he failed. Her mother, Eleonora, still visibly distraught after six years, told the paper, 
I'd be relieved to find the person who did it, relieved just thinking somebody got what they deserve for taking another life. I wouldn't have to wonder anymore who it could be. I'm glad they found her body. That way we can have her here with us. She's with us, and we can go visit her in the cemetery. The Selecki's contacted local media in North County in early 1990, announcing that they were withdrawing the reward as of May 1st. Their hopes were that announcing that the reward was being withdrawn would motivate someone to finally come forward to claim it before it was too late. It didn't happen. One of the reasons this case went cold was the dearth of viable suspects. We've talked about Teresa's manager and how he stayed on the list for years. More on him shortly. But there were no others who really stood out. Police checked into all the men Teresa had a history with, whether formally or casually. They checked out the men at Smitty's that night whose names they had obtained. They looked at Daryl, the man who had found her. He was found to have been on his regular route that day. The location where he found Teresa was one where it was common for him to be driving at that time of day, and he had his own vehicle, so he could not have driven with her to the spot where she was found. Investigators were very thorough, according to Detective Dugall. Everyone they looked at had an alibi, no reason to kill Teresa, or both. There was a serial killer operating in the San Diego area in the mid-1980s, Robert Elliott Porter, who almost looked like a good suspect. He picked up petite female hitchhikers, drove them to remote locations, and sexually assaulted and strangled them. But Porter preyed on sex workers in the city, generally picking them up on El Cajon Boulevard in downtown San Diego, and it was not felt that there were any similarities to Teresa's murder. They also focused on a man named Joseph Morozik. Morozik worked at the same bar where Teresa worked, and the investigators got his name from the manager, the one who was super interested in Teresa. This was because he had learned that Morozik was wanted for an unrelated murder in the San Diego area. This seemed like a good lead. A man who was believed to have committed another murder just happened to know and work with Teresa. Investigators interviewed Morozik a number of times, but he denied being involved. He remained on the persons of interest list for years, but was eventually forensically eliminated. Investigators over the years also spoke with some killers incarcerated in California, like Randy Kraft and others, but they came up empty. In 1991, a task force comprising investigators from the Sheriff's Department and San Diego Police Department was established to look at the seven-year-old Selecki case afresh. They literally started over, re-interviewing everyone and trying to cross some of the men in Teresa's life off their persons of interest list. Detectives were so thorough, Detective Dugall told me, that they went down a whole bunch of investigative avenues that were very, very tangential, real stretches. One of these was they looked back at the case file and found the guy who had called in the tip about the hitchhiker. Detectives took the sketch he had made and went to the intersection where he had dropped off the hitchhiker and started asking around. This was at the intersection of Waxwing and Moa Drives in Vista, about six miles away from Gopher Canyon Road and five miles away from Smitty's Bar. And someone pointed them in the direction of a house that back in 1984 was a known drug house. Sure enough, the guy who had lived there back then was still there. He willingly spoke to police, even admitting that he had been a druggie back in those days. And he recognized the guy in the sketch. His name was Charles Morgan. He knew him very well. He was able to tell them a little about this Morgan guy and even pointed out the house where Morgan's parents had used to live. But he hadn't seen him around lately. And that's because Charles Morgan was dead. 
Detectives were disappointed to learn that Morgan had been killed in a car crash in summer 1984. Another lead gone cold. At this point in 1991, the case file contained many names of witnesses, persons of interest, and even suspects who were somehow connected to Teresa. Of these, Teresa's old manager was still on the front burner as far as investigators were concerned, but they still had nothing connecting him to Teresa's slaying. Okay, let's talk about the forensics. In 1991, testing was conducted on the semen stain on Teresa's body, which had been maintained in evidence and was still viable. DNA testing was still in its infancy in the U.S., but there was some information that could be extracted from the sample. On Tuesday, June 25, 1991, a Scientific Investigations Division criminalist wrote an examination report stating that Teresa's sweater vest had tested positive for seminal fluid. They were able to determine that the semen depositor on Teresa's buttock was the same person whose semen was on Teresa's fleece vest. The profiles were one and the same. They also determined that the blood on Teresa's body, which had been collected via swabs, was all hers and no one else's. In September 1991, the FBI lab issued a report to the task force referencing DNA testing on the semen stains. The task force had collected voluntary DNA samples from a large number of the men who knew Teresa for comparison to the semen stain samples. They got a number of exclusions at this time, but no matches. In 1993, the San Diego Sheriff's Department Cold Case Unit reopened the case after an ex-boyfriend of Teresa's was called in in a tip. This was because he continued to blab publicly about her murder. The ex-boyfriend was a guy in a bar band who had dated Teresa for a time and appeared to 1984 investigators to have an unhealthy obsession with her. Investigators attempted to obtain a DNA sample from the guy who had never been excluded as a suspect. He refused to cooperate, and absent a court order, which they could not get because they did not have probable cause, the investigators had to leave it alone. Then, in 1997, the case was again re-examined with an eye toward the original main suspect, Teresa's rebuffed manager. He had yet to give a DNA sample either. He was questioned numerous times over the years, but no voluntary buckle swab was ever obtained from him. The detectives working on the case at one point had collected a cigarette butt he discarded, but if it was ever tested, the records are lost. And then, by March 2006, more sophisticated testing was available and detectives made use of it. Gathering more DNA samples, they were able to eliminate four more men off the suspect list. But more significantly, fingernail scrapings from Teresa's autopsy were sent to the crime lab and they were able to extract a male DNA profile from under her nails that matched that of the person who left semen on her. Whoever had sexually assaulted Teresa had been severely scratched by her, and logic dictated that this person was her killer. They now had three identical profiles from three different sources within the physical evidence. They had a strong case for first-degree murder, if they could catch the suspect. In April 2009, the male suspect's DNA was entered into CODIS and the case details were loaded into VICAP. Nothing came up. And there, the case sat for 10 years. In 2019, the San Diego Sheriff's Department had a number of cold cases with DNA that were sitting on the shelf, dead as a doornail. Detective Dugall knew about forensic genealogy and that it had helped catch the Golden State Killer the year before. He wondered if they couldn't use the same methodology in-house to progress some of the cold cases. 
After getting approval, they decided to start with the Selecki case. There was ample DNA to work with, and the case had seen no movement in a decade. Remember that the genetic profile used for forensic genealogy is not the same as the profile used in CODIS. Investigators needed a SNP profile of the suspect to upload to the open-source databases and find relatives. This is not the typical chromosomal testing done by police crime labs. So they sent a sample to Gene by Gene Lab, which is the parent company of Family Tree DNA. The lab prepared the SNP profile of the suspect. Meanwhile, Detective Dugall got a crash course in forensic genealogy from the FBI team who had worked on GSK and called on Barbara Ray Venter, the genealogist who worked on the Jody Sarin case. I covered that case in Season 1, Episode 7. Barbara Ray Venter agreed to help free of charge and made herself available for dozens of calls and questions over the duration of the process, which took about a year because it was very, very complicated. Once the SNP profile of the suspect was prepared, it was uploaded to Family Tree DNA as well as GEDmatch. The search of GEDmatch was hindered by the simultaneous change in GEDmatch policy requiring all profile owners to opt in to law enforcement searching, resulting in the loss of two-thirds of the database. So the results obtained by the searches of the two databases weren't all that promising. The closest relative to the suspect shared only 102 centimorgans. This is a second or third cousin, most likely. And there were some other relatives with less than 100 centimorgans in common with the suspect, but only one side of the suspect's family tree was represented. So while Detective Dugall and his team were able to find the most recent common ancestors of the killer and the 102 centimorgan female cousin, they could not triangulate to narrow down the tree. And all the descendants of the common ancestors which were the great-great-great-great-grandparents of the killer and the cousin, had tons of kids. Detective Dugall told me he was not kidding when he said that the tree his team built had 5,000 people on it. It was a Herculean task. The team felt that the best way to tackle eliminating branches of the tree was to take individual branches and start with those which had family members who were located in Southern California. Then they started target testing. What this means is that Detective Dugall or one of his team members would call up people who were remote relatives of the killer, tell them they were investigating a murder, and ask them to submit a DNA sample. Lots and lots of people cooperated, at least 30. In fact, only two men rejected the request out of hand. When investigators obtained the DNA sample with the SNP profiles, they could then see what level relation they were to the suspect. That helped them eliminate more and more branches of the tree. And often, the relatives would share family tree information with the investigators, who were able to use this information once they verified its accuracy. Eventually, they got to Ethel. Ethel was an 82-year-old relative of the suspect who shared 1,105 centimorgans with him. Her DNA results were crucial because the high level of shared DNA told investigators that they were in the right branch of the suspect's family. He had to be a descendant of Ethel's father or one of her siblings. Based on the shared centimorgans, he looked to be something like a great half-nephew of Ethel's. They talked with Ethel to try to better understand her family tree. They asked her if her father could have fathered a child out of wedlock, and she said, no way. Her married parents were committed to each other and were extremely religious and devout. They were barking up the wrong tree. Get it? Sorry, I couldn't resist there. Investigators were at a little bit of a roadblock here because they started to believe that Ethel had a half-nephew or great-half-nephew whose ancestor, 
Ethel's half-brother, had been adopted out, a misattributed or unknown parentage event. So they went back to the tree. By now, they were more savvy about how to narrow down tree branches. And they were certain that Texas was the suspect's family tree epicenter. Why STR testing had given them a potential list of surnames and Ethel's maiden name was on the list. Her family was from Dallas. But Teresa was killed in California. So they looked to see which cousin within Ethel's tree had migrated to California. And there were three, one of whom could be linked to San Diego County. And he had a grandson, a man named Richard, who was the right age in 1984 to be the suspect and who lived in Vista, California at the time. Not only that, but he lived smack in the middle of the route between the Buena Vista Market and the spot where Teresa was found on Gopher Canyon Road. He had no criminal history, but he was alive, and DNA could be obtained from him. This was a very promising lead. I'm going to cut to the chase here because I don't want to get everyone's hopes up. Investigators were really excited about Richard. He checked all the boxes. They didn't want to approach him and alert him to their quest for DNA in case he was indeed their killer. So they conducted surveillance and a surreptitious DNA grab on Richard, unbeknownst to him. And when they got the test results back, they were floored. It wasn't him. This was a huge blow to the investigation. For the department's first genealogy case, the test run, it seemed like a fail. Around a dozen other cold cases hinged on Detective Dugall and his team getting the solve on the Selecki case using forensic genealogy. And if they couldn't do it after a year of effort and untold expense, the other cases would never be afforded the chance. So they went back to the case file to see if any of the names were the ones that now appeared on their much smaller trees. They also thought they could create basic family trees for some of the significant names in the case file to see if any names on those trees overlapped with the ones on Ethel's tree. Because the investigators were now much more familiar with how genealogy worked, they were able to pretty quickly assemble basic trees for some of the names on the persons of interest list. For example, the guy who had dated Teresa and refused to give a DNA sample. They looked up his ancestry and put together his tree and figured out without too much effort that his tree did not intersect with the suspect's tree and they could cross him off the list. And then Jeff Vandersip, the senior crime and intelligence analyst for the San Diego Sheriff's Department Cold Case Homicide Unit, came across the name of the hitchhiker in the file. Remember that a witness had called in a tip right after the murder, reporting that he had driven a guy that night. The witness had worked on a sketch of his passenger, a skinny white guy with long hair, wearing a sleeveless Levi's jean jacket. In 1991, the investigators had learned that his name was Charles Morgan and he was deceased. But now, being very familiar with the ins and outs of genealogy, Vandersip was able to construct a tree for this deceased hitchhiker. And guess what? His tree showed that his relatives traced back to the Dallas, Texas area. His mom, Wanda, and dad, Charles, were both from Texas. They had relocated to the San Diego area before Charles Morgan was born. Unfortunately, Charles Lane Morgan had been cremated. Even though he had a headstone and was buried next to his father, Charles, in a military cemetery, his body would yield no useful information, as the incineration would have destroyed all the genetic material. So the investigators decided to approach his sister, whom I am going to refer to only by her initial, L. L lived in a state near California, and while she talked quite a bit with investigators about her brother, she refused to give a DNA sample. 
So they went to the next best thing, a half-sister of Charles Morgan who was living in San Diego. The half-sister was very cooperative. She willingly gave a DNA sample. The investigators held their breaths. And when the results came in, they could finally exhale. The half-sister's DNA profile showed that she shared 1,818 centimorgans with the killer. This is a very close relation, sibling level. Her only known brother was Charles Lane Morgan. Investigators doing the genealogy had been correct. Ethel was his great half-aunt. Her father had a son out of wedlock who was adopted into the Morgan family and was Charles Morgan's grandfather. Ethel's family never knew. So the results of the testing gave the investigators a very high level of certainty that Charles Lane Morgan was their killer. But they wanted more. The investigators turned to circumstantial evidence to satisfy themselves that Charles Lane Morgan was indeed the killer of Teresa Selecki. After all, he could have had an unknown sibling who could have been the killer. But all signs pointed to him. First of all, Charles Morgan's mother, Wanda, lived in Vista in the mid-80s. And so did he, although he was kind of itinerant, crashing on people's couches and moving around a lot. One of his crash pads was with a buddy who lived on Little Gopher Canyon Road, right near where Teresa had been killed. He was very familiar with that area. Detective Dugall obtained a photo of Charles Morgan from his family dating from around the time of his death. And he said that when he looked at it, he got the chills. It was a dead ringer for the sketch of the hitchhiker picked up that night, the one in the sleeveless denim jacket. The one who was almost certainly the same guy as the one shooting pool in Smitty's bar the night Teresa was killed. Detective Dugall learned that despite the bartender not knowing him, Charles Morgan was known to frequent Smitty's. But there was something else, the jean jacket. Get this. Charles Morgan was wearing it when he was killed in that car crash. And the family, specifically his sister L, still had it. It was disappointing when DNA tests on the jacket yielded no results. It had been sitting at L's house in a very hot region of the country for 35 years. Any DNA on it had long since degraded. But the fact that they had it, and it fit the description of the unique item of clothing worn by the man seen at Smitty's that night, was very good circumstantial evidence. So what do we know about Charles Lane Morgan? He was born to mom Wanda and dad Charles A. Morgan on July 14, 1959 in California. They also had his sister, L, whom I mentioned. Charles A. Morgan, Charles's father, died in 1970 at age 50 and was buried in Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery in San Diego, a military cemetery. Wanda went on to remarry a number of times and gave birth to Charles's two half-sisters, but no other sons. Charles was known as Skip among his family members. Charles graduated from James Madison High School in San Diego. I'll post his senior photo, which shows him looking like a California boy with blonde shoulder-length hair and a coat and tie, definitely someone who might be nicknamed Skip. Detective Dugall tells me that by the time he died six years later, Charles had deteriorated significantly. At that time, he was working in Fallbrook as a carnival worker, and he didn't look like a nice SoCal surfer dude anymore either. Photos of Charles toward the end provided by his family showed that he had what Detective Dugall called tweaker face, that kind of pinched, drawn, blotchy, and unhealthy look that meth addicts have. He was super skinny, weighing in at under 150 pounds, even though he was in the 5'8 to 5'10 range. He had dirty blonde hair that was literally dirty looking, and a creepy little mustache. 
Combined with the sleeveless denim jacket, it was not a good look. His family confirmed that Charles had a drug problem and that they had tried to keep him on the straight and narrow, but their efforts had largely failed. He was troubled, as Detective Dugall was told by his family. They were not very close with him, but said he had a lot of friends. His sister told a local paper, quote, Everyone was Skip's friend. If he only knew you 30 minutes, you were his friend. When he died, Charles had a minor record for some burglary and drug charges and was heading down the wrong path in life. Speaking of the wrong path, Charles got married in 1977, at age only 18, to a 16-year-old girl who had the same name as Charles's sister, Elle. 2019 investigators spoke with this wife, who told them that the ill-fated young relationship was dysfunctional from the start. They didn't stay together for too long. Charles descended into drugs and became somewhat shiftless and rootless. We don't know whether Charles Morgan killed anyone else before he killed Teresa. If he did, DNA has not been matched to him. It's doubtful whether he had any more victims after Teresa, since he died in a car crash just a few months later. On May 7, 1984, Charles was driving a borrowed 1978 Opal on Highway 78 in Bonsall. This is a fast, winding two-lane highway through a rural area of North San Diego County. 24-year-old Charles was alone. He tried to pass another car and lost control of the opal and slammed into a power line pole and was declared brain dead. But in the ultimate irony, a contemporary article about the crash by Bill Olson is entitled Charles Morgan, From Untimely Death Comes Gift of Life. It focuses on how Charles was kept alive on machines so his organs could be harvested and donated. They were used to help keep several recipients alive. The ultimate irony since Charles had killed Teresa just four months earlier. And also referenced in the article is a quote by his mother, Wanda, saying, quote, He lived life in the fast lane, but he loved life, he loved people, and he loved the Lord. Forgive me for being a tad skeptical. Oddly, Charles was buried in the military cemetery next to his father, Charles A. Morgan, who had served in the Navy, even though Charles was not a veteran. He has a very simple white marble headstone mirroring that of his father. Charles Morgan's sister, Elle, told the investigators that her brother was a pretty bad guy. He wasn't a major criminal, but she acknowledged that he had had run-ins with the law, a drug record, and so on. She had no reason to believe that he was capable of murder, though. It's understandable that she didn't want to know, and resisted giving her own DNA out of concern with tainting her family name. But Detective Dugall and his team feel that with the proven sibling relationship that they do have— and all the circumstantial evidence they have linking Charles Morgan to the crime, they would have enough to convict him of Teresa's murder in a court of law. So let's talk about what likely happened on the night Teresa died. Almost all of this is speculative based on what we know of the events that evening and the crime scene. Only two people really know what went down, and they are both dead. We assume that the unidentified guy at the bar, whose description matched the sketch of the hitchhiker and who was wearing an identical jacket, was Charles Morgan. He was known to go to Smitty's, and one of the houses he crashed at often was walking distance from the bar. Detective Dugall theorizes that Charles saw Teresa at the bar that night. We have no idea whether they met or talked or anything. But late night, when the bar closed, last call was 2.15, and Charles was walking back to the house nearby where he was crashing, his route would have taken him right past the bank of payphones Teresa was using, between 2.30 and 2.45-ish a.m. It was very dark on the street, but Teresa's car could have been running and her headlights on, illuminating the vulnerable young woman. 
We have no way of knowing how Teresa and Charles Morgan ended up in her car. We don't know who drove. It's possible that Morgan was looking for a ride. Hitchhiking in the 80s was totally normal. But it seems unlikely to me that Teresa would have picked up a hitchhiker at that time of night. She was only one quarter mile away from Patty's house where she was staying. She wanted to get back to her friend who was ill. She would not have been interested in driving out of her way to accommodate a stranger asking her for a ride at close to 3 a.m. She certainly would not have driven him 10 miles to a totally unfamiliar area, Gopher Canyon Road. I think instead, something happened and Morgan ended up driving the car. Whether he grabbed her and forced her into the vehicle, or he jumped into the car as she was sitting there, I think she was abducted against her will. No weapon was used on Teresa that we know of, and she was not restrained, so it's unknown how she was made to submit, but I'd guess that Morgan took over, driving the car to an area he was familiar with, Gopher Canyon Road. Since Morgan didn't have his own place, perhaps he selected that area, a dark, deserted golf course, as one where he could have his way with Teresa without being interrupted. It's interesting that there was no evidence that anything happened inside the vehicle. There was no blood inside the car. There was no blood on Teresa's clothes. Teresa's clothes, shoes, and purse were found outside the car, as was her body. My theory is that Morgan was driving, and perhaps he slowed down and Teresa jumped out the passenger side, kicked off her heels so she could run faster, and ran onto the golf course in the dark to get away. Morgan caught up with her, dropping the keys in the process, stripped her, assaulted her as she fought back, and strangled her. Or he could have parked the car and taken her forcibly onto the golf course, telling her to leave her shoes because of the overgrown slope. After he assaulted and strangled her, he dragged her back up to the car and retrieved her clothes and brought them back up as well. He had every intention of putting her and her personal items into the vehicle and absconding with the body and the evidence, but was slowed down by the fact that the car keys were on the dark fairway somewhere, and Morgan certainly did not have, or did not want to use, a flashlight. As he was weighing his options, he became alarmed when Daryl drove up and surveyed the scene. When he saw the headlights approaching, he hid behind a tree or down the embankment. Teresa lay there, dead, her shoes next to her head and her clothes and purse nearby. When Daryl drove off, having seen the body, Morgan panicked, hurled the shoes down the hill, grabbed up the clothes and purse, and ran. When he realized he should head into the shrubbery instead of running along the roadway, he dropped the clothing and darted into the bushes. Detective Dugall observed that this guy was not necessarily thinking rationally. Perhaps he was high or otherwise impaired and his judgment was not rational. If his thought was that by taking the clothes, he could prevent Teresa from being identified, he forgot that the car, registered to her, would give away the secret as soon as the police ran the plates. So where did Morgan go when he ran from the scene? Remember, he had a buddy on Little Gopher Canyon Road who let Morgan use his couch on occasion. But Detective Dugall believes that that night, Morgan wanted to distance himself from that area. The footprints that ran across the road show that the killer ran in the opposite direction from the house where he sometimes crashed. Instead, he likely traveled on foot for a time looking for a ride, eventually being picked up by the man who would later call in a tip and getting dropped off far from the crime scene. So we know how Charles Morgan's relatives received the news that he was a killer. What about Teresa's relatives? Well, Detective Dugall said that when they finally got the opportunity to tell the Solecki siblings, there were only three still alive and the parents were both deceased. They were thrilled and very emotional at the same time. The loss of Teresa had been devastating to the family, several members of which placed blame for her death. 
They must have assumed that the case would never be solved. Since none of them lived in the area anymore and so many years had passed, it must have seemed forgotten. But it wasn't. Far from it. After 35 years, Teresa Selecki's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. I'm really excited about the episode you just heard today. Almost none of this information about Teresa, about the case, and about the killer has ever been disclosed previously. The San Diego Sheriff's Department Cold Case Homicide Unit got special permission to work with me to tell Teresa's story and the saga of how it was finally solved. Very special thanks to now-retired Cold Case Homicide Detective Troy Dugall, who was a lead detective on the case, and to Jeffrey Vandersip, crime analyst extraordinaire who worked side-by-side with Detective Dugall to get answers for Teresa's family. For those of you who are interested in hearing from them personally, please listen to their podcast about how they solve this case. You can find the San Diego County Sheriff's Department podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash S slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter and at DNA ID podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime. Growing up as a latchkey kid in a small town in Maine, I always assumed I was safe. After all, unless it makes national news, murder isn't something people talk about around here. But that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Murder, She Told is a true crime podcast featuring crime stories, unsolved murders of missing persons, and baffling cold cases from my home state of Maine, New England, and small towns across America. These are the crime stories your hometown doesn't want to talk about. The mysteries buried deep in the newspaper archives of local American history. These are the homicides you've probably never heard of before. Through detailed storytelling and connections with family, friends, and investigators closest to the case, Murder, She Told will hit home for any true crime fan, whether you're from Maine or from away. Visit MurderSheTold.com to suggest your hometown crime story. And subscribe now wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told.